0: Welcome to 24 Faithful. We are excited to be back with you for today's episode. We have Joel Wood and Bradley Adams both with us today. So excited to have you guys with us.
1: Bradley coming to us from Barnhart, Missouri.
2: Is that heart spelled like the organ or H A R T?
1: It's uh, spelled H A R T.
2: Okay. Good to know. There you go. No
1: organs today.
0: That's uh, not too awfully far-ish from where I am. I'm in Oklahoma, so Missouri's oh, Missouri State, so uh, I'll come over and see them. <laughs> <laughs> see, at least you're on the right team, so I appreciate that. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> we,
1: we try. We try. We try. All
0: right, but it's exciting today, not just because of Boomer Sooner, but because this is also the 100th episode of this podcast, and so – uh, milestone. Mark and I, yeah, so a really good milestone. We've had a couple extra bonus episodes that not really in that counting, so technically we passed 100 episodes that we produced in some fashion, but official episodes, this is number 100, and so excited to be able to hit that milestone, and today we get to continue our conversation also, which is exciting, about season number five, getting into the second portion here, um, episodes 7 through 12, going from 1 p.m. to 7 p.m., and there's a little bit of action that takes place during this portion, and so excited to be able to get into that. So starting off with Erick and his plot to basically changing from, let's not worry about attacking Russia because we can't get out, let's attack America. And so he gets gets that whole plan underway, and in the process, they he discovers that the triggering mechanism for the bomb has been changed. I can't remember the exact terminology that was used, but uh, I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that Bradley will correct us on on that. He's good for correcting me and making sure I am doing the right things after the. Gotta fact. keep you on your
1: gotta keep you on your toes, Josh.
0: Yes, that's hard to do when you're sitting sometimes. Yeah. But, but anyway, so so he goes and he, and he and he gets this goes and he gets this mechanic to open up the bombs, and they're talking to Rosenwig to be able to arm the bombs and the arm the canisters to be able to go off. And it's a very interesting thing, but the the, the plan does not go off according to plan, and Earwig is not beneficently. Maybe that's a benevolently rewarded for trying to get back in America. Anyway, <laughs> that's probably a poor setup. But Bradley, why don't you go ahead and give your thoughts about about him and what he did there?
2: Well, I, I like Owick's character. I feel like he's kind of underused. I think quite a few people in this season are a little bit underused. Owick's certainly one of them. I think Mark Shepard is terrific. Um, I don't know what I can't. I don't know exactly whether he was on Supernatural just before this or whether he joined it after this, but certainly all of the comments I ever see on YouTube videos involving Erwick, when I watch him sort of... Oh, look, it's whatever his name is from Supernatural. I don't know who he is in Supernatural. I just know he's in it. Um, but you mentioned the scenes there with with Cal, the mechanic, which are really nice, actually. There's the there's that great one where he's sort of... Uh, Cal is scared, as you would be, that you've got a terrorist with a gun pointing at you to do some things with some weird canisters. And he... Wants reassurance, essentially, that he won't get killed. And Irwin, and, and Mark Shepard and Irwin go on this nice little little sentence about how he's not his enemy, the government's the enemy. So I give you my word, I won't kill you. Obviously, he doesn't stick to this, because why would he stick to this? But it's a really nice scene, and we, we get a couple of these. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's quite nice. I, I like the attack on the Sunrise Hill's Mall, but that's largely for the morality discussion, I think. And the stuff that comes with with Lynn McGill we will come on to it in a minute. But I think that's quite nice. I think it's nice that we get the opportunity to see Jack in this undercover role again and put in this massive moral quandary of, well, we let them release the Nerve Gas and we kill 800 people here now and I'm involved in that. But we might save hundreds of thousands more. Or let's take our chances and not kill 800 people now. And maybe down the line we'll end up losing a lot more people in larger attacks. But we also might stop that too, whereas let's just try and reduce the casualty number now. I really, really love that episode and that whole sort of setup of putting Jack in this situation, putting Lynn, Bill, Audrey, the president in this situation. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's really good. First of all, I hate Lynn. Let's just we'll, get come that on, we'll, we'll come on to Lynn. Everyone hates Lynn, and let's, let's partly you're okay. we'll come on to it. Can't stand Lynn.
1: As far as Irwin goes, you kind of start to understand that he is a little bit deadlier or tougher than you expected. Because when you saw when you saw him in the in the airport, you just think it's just this this regular guy that's just going to take a key card, drop it off, probably get killed for his troubles, and then they'll move on. <laughs> they'll move on the on the merry way. But then, as he gets to the location to drop off the key card, you start to understand that. Okay, he's, a, he's more in charge than we were led to believe. And he's not my favorite character, but he's one of those deceivable characters because he's one of those uh, looks can be deceiving uh, type of characters that you start to understand right away, punches this guy in the stomach or when he just puts a bullet in this guy's brain just for the hell of it. Um, you kind of understand that up until the point where he dies you kind of understand that this guy is not really playing around and maybe he had more of a role in the uh, the the events leading up to the airport um takeover than you might have thought previously i thought he came on quite nicely uh, i thought his his arc ended kind of abruptly i will say but he was he was a decent you know, C-Squad C villain. I'll, I'll, give him, I'll give him a decent C-Squad villain award.
0: Mm. Yeah, overall, I, I liked him. I agree with Bradley that he was probably underutilized in what he could have done and the role that he could have played in there. And I think it was kind of interesting the way that he, he was introduced. Like you mentioned that in the airport pieces, he just seemed like he was just a delivery boy. Or that he was being positioned that way, but no, he's actually like not not masterminding. He's kind of positioned that way for a lot of this first part. But we, we realize that he answers to Bjerko, but he and bjorko doesn't like <laughs> the decisions that Irig makes. But and from Björko's perspective, it's like, hey, I told you what to do. You didn't listen. Sorry. See ya. It's and been years acquiring a d- weapon that would bring Moscow to
2: its knees, and you waste it, killing a handful of American civilians.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly.
2: It's, it's the best villain opening scene bar none in 24 for me. It's magnificent. That as an opening line, Julian Sands is, is so good in this role. Uh, it's one of those things, we talked before last week about the season premiere being that sort of impact and by the end of Act 1 you're like, okay, I have to be on this. I have to be involved in this. And a lot of the times, individual episodes kind of are built like that where within five minutes you're, oh no, I have to pay fully attention to this because something huge is always happening. And this is another one of those times of Erwick's been positioned as this villain for the last four episodes, and he comes in, and then who's this other guy? Who's this, who's this guy? And Erwick's dead within 30 seconds. Oh, okay. Stand up and pay attention to this guy because now he's the big threat, and he seems dangerous, and he seems that sort of level-headed, in control that Erwick maybe didn't quite have.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was just going to add that part too. So he he's one of the villains that definitely... Seems to he doesn't get he doesn't have like immediate outrage that comes out. It's like he he meticulously thinks through the thing. So even though I mean he kills Urwig like so quickly after that meeting, you know, I mean, after you see Bierko and the way he reacts through the rest of it, he had been thinking about that for a little bit. It's like, okay, this guy, he's like totally messing up everything that's going on. And it's like, okay, this is the consequence, and he needs to let everybody else on the team know this is what happens if you go away from the plan we need to stick to the plan and so yeah definitely but Joel you ma- you brought up Lynn <laughs> and he is definitely the the character that I don't know I definitely never liked I don't think any of us liked really he had his moments but yeah he's likable at times there are moments where he is likable yeah
1: name yeah,
2: so. one when he <laughs> saves Jack and Curtis and the tag team at the airport you asked me to name one, there's Got one. one. Also, <laughs> also, as we'll talk about next week, his death, his sacrifice. The other thing is, and, and I'll, I'll let you go for it in a second, I'll let you rip, rip at him, but there is one thing that I think people do kind of hate him for, which is the first time that he asked Jack to be brought in, um, back in episode five, or end of episode four, episode five, to be questioned about David Palmer's murder. And I think, or I imagine, that a lot of 24 fans kind of look at that and go, well, what are you doing? We know Jack's innocent, blah, blah, blah. But actually, logically, it makes sense for him. He's not he's not antagonistic towards Jack. He, just, he agrees that Jack is innocent at Dave Palmer's murder. But obviously, there's a lot of circumstances and, and, and things around the last 18 months and his death and his faking of the death and all the deaths that have happened on this day that yeah. Jack kind of need, does need to answer for. And so from that perspective, I don't have a particular problem with him calling in Jack originally to be like well what's happened i don't you know, explain this to me walk us through it try and help us understand everything the second time power trip and he's in his middle of his mental breakdown hatelin absolutely fine but there are, he, he's not terrible the whole way through he's just when he is dislikable there, there's just no redeeming factor the, the two episodes where he has his essential breakdown he's horrible absolutely horrible Lynn I'm getting a headache
1: Lynn is one of those faces that you just want to punch Lynn has one of those I want to punch you in the face looks okay he's like he he, he looks like the the bully in high school that you just no matter what you just want to punch him in the face every time you see him that's what Lynn looks like to me and the way he acts like this annoying, nagging, wanting all these protocols and, and, and conversations and taking people out of their work when they're in the middle of a crisis. It's just, it, everything about Lynn annoys me. I will give him credit for the airport, for the airport incident, the distress code. I'll give him credit for that. I'll even give him credit for risking his life to save them. Everything else, can't stand it. Those are the only two scenes where I will give him even the slightest bit of credit. The rest of the time, completely annoying. Um, Wanting to bring Jack in, I understand it. But at the same time, you say that right after he saves everybody at the airport. So so the the, the the touching moment of him saving them at the airport with the distress code and everything like that, completely wiped out by him wanting to bring Jack in. Just completely wiped it out. And just the way he acts toward Chloe,
2: the way he acts toward Bill, please call me Mr. McGill. That's, <laughs> that, that's the key, for me, that's the key line in the entire season for him because it's an ego thing. The whole... Circumstance of his mental breakdown and all of his dislikable qualities, and everything he does to Chloe and to Audrey and to Bill and to everything else, and he and derails the entire search for the Centox. It's all an ego thing, and it all comes out of that scene that opening scene of wanting to be called Mr. McGill, wanting to use uh Bill's office, wanting to call him Mr. Buchanan, making it seem professional. It is an ego thing, and when he gets beaten up, and then subsequently Jack doesn't follow his orders, and Logan's Uh, berating him. And Logan's not even that harsh. I mean, this guy is brought in to try and save the country from having two hundred, three hundred thousand 300,000 deaths. And the president sort of saying, just do your job, or someone else will have to, because we have to find this nerve gas. And because he's been beaten up, and because his ego's been fractured, suddenly then he has to kind of rein in control, and take control, and say, no, no, I am the most powerful person here. And he doesn't like it. And that is essentially why 40% of CTU gets killed. It's because he just cannot deal with the fact that he has more. There are other people who are more powerful than him. He is not sort of God of his own country. That, that's it. That is literally it.
0: Hmm. I'm trying to think and evaluate. I think I like him maybe just a hair more than I liked Aaron Driscoll. <laughs> I, don't know. I think that's an insult to Aaron Driscoll. I, don't um, I, I really didn't like Aaron Driscoll. <laughs> so I don't know. It's, I,
2: would,
1: yeah. I, would ta- I would take Aaron Driscoll over Lynn because at least Aaron for the moment was willing to work with Jack and put her ego aside to better the mission. Lynn, on the other hand, was hindering the mission more than he was helping with the exception of that one distress code, he hindered the mission more than he helped the mission, wanting Jack to be wanting Jack to be brought in when Jack is at the airport, um, ready to help Curtis find Erwick, but he wants Jack brought back to CTU.
2: That hindered the mission. He, yeah, he that, was the intervention from Curtis five minutes away from getting the Russian president killed. That's it. That That's all there is to it. He, he would have been responsible for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and that scene right there, that was definitely, that was probably my favorite scene with Lynn is when he's finally at his lowest. He's like, totally lost it and Curtis stands up and, and and he tells him, he's like, okay, get these guys out of here get and get rid of them and he's, I can't do it. <laughs> he's like, what? I gave you a direct order. He's like, you're not acting rationally. <laughs> and Curtis, just calm, even-tempered, <clears throat> he's like, okay, if, if you want to progress down this way, I'm going to pull my firearm <laughs> just to warn you. And, and then you see the other red suit getting ready to go there and he says, I'm, I'm unseating you based on whatever is section one twelve or something like that. No, section one twelve. And and so then I just love that the one guy he shifts back and forth a little bit and he's finally, what can I what would you like me to do, Mr. Manning? It's like, Yes <laughs> It's like that moment everyone's waiting for it's like Lynn just totally escalating so much through that episode and then finally, boom. It's like okay. <laughs> and then flood glades open it's like, okay, let's get this work done. <laughs>
1: but you but you could tell like it's one of those little things that twenty four does like you can tell they were building that up the entire episode, yeah, because uh Lynn would make these harsh and rash comments, and then all of a sudden the camera would catch Curtis and he's looking at Lynn, and his eyes are are looking concerned like what what is Lynn doing, and there mm. was a couple of those throughout the episode, so even if you hadn't seen. The episode before, just by those looks and the the camera cuts um, throughout the episode, every time Lynn would jump on somebody or make a a um, irrational comment, you could tell that it was building up to something that was going to involve Curtis.
2: Mm-hmm. I do feel sorry for Lynn when what uh, for, for <laughs> not not during this, but when he actually seems fairly humble when he's in in the next episode when he's in the cell and he's like, I just need to talk to my sister, she's in trouble. He seems fine in that. And then when Bill actually tells him that Jenny's dead, and it's all Sean Astin, it's not at all the fact that I like Lynn because I hate Lynn, but but Sean Astin actually does manage to convey some sort of sympathy for him, even in that situation, even after hours of spent hating him because he's just the worst boss ever. Even in that moment, I still do feel kind of sorry for him that his sister, who he saw four hours ago, who talked to her on the phone half an hour ago, has been killed, it's an assassin's job I know all, all the the bad stuff and the, the guilt involved in attacking CTU that comes off it, but just in that brief moment it's actually really quite sad um, and it's all Sean Astin who is even in the face of being really unlikable as a character absolutely nails it, He's, he is so good at being horrible, essentially
1: mm-hmm.
2: Joel's shaking his head, he doesn't like that,
1: I don't because his sister his sister gets killed, and he acts concerned for two point five seconds, and then asks about a stupid keycard that he should have that he should have brought to their attention two hours ago, four, four hours ago. three hours ago, four hours ago, however long it was, should have brought the, to their attention four hours ago.
2: Oh yeah, I'm not de- I'm not if denying that.
1: Mm-hmm. If he would have brought it to their attention four hours ago. His sister might not be dead.
0: This this is a fair point, actually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and the, the, of course a direct a direct uh, result of that is Edgar, and and his passing.
1: Yeah, I got a hot take on that one too. <laughs> I'm upset about that.
0: But <laughs> but we'll but we'll get to the the attack. We kind of foreshadowed that here, but we have the event that took that led <clears throat> up to McGill being replaced was the Suvorov ambush and and so obviously uh Bierko not happy with how everything's going down so he contacts the president and says I'm gonna leave America alone I just want the president and so uh, President Suvorov and President Logan's like I can't do that and then finally he gives in and they give him the motorcade's route so that then Biarco's men can be able to get in position and ambush and attack. But yeah, it's it's a, a terrible thing. And then you got Martha that that's like, no, come on, stand up to him and be the man you ought to be, have a backbone, blah blah blah, and doing all these things. And and he's not he's not stopping it. And so she jumps in the car, and that complicates the situation. And Martha's trying to act like, oh yeah, everything's fine, I just want to ride with you and uh it's like, uh, why has not the motorcade been called back yet? Or it's like what's going on? It's like, why would we call me called back? <laughs> I mean Martha's acting very
2: awkward. Gene <laughs> Gene Smart is terrific the entire season, but Martha's acting skills, my god, do they vary wildly. There are times when she has the best poker face ever. And then in this one she's just like, there's clearly something wrong. You're not hiding this very well. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Martha, there are times where I really like Martha, and then there are times where I cannot stand Martha. Um, this particular time, um, I don't think she, I mean, she says, you know, go ahead and stand up to him and, and, you know, get a backbone. That sounds nice until you realize that the president has about, I don't know, thousands of lives at stake. Um But at the same time, it was a uh, kind of a stupid move to just jump in the motorcade um, because she did it on the hope that her husband, Logan, would have second thoughts because she was in the motorcade and call it back. Mm -hmm. Not knowing the fact that even if he does call it back, then she would be directly responsible for the thousands of deaths that followed. So... Would she have been able to live with that? I'm not sure that that wouldn't have sent her into a further mental breakdown. That would happened. she have been
2: able? Would would she have been able to live with the fact that she knew her husband was sending the Russian present and Anya Suvorov, who she befriended, to death without actually trying to do something about it?
1: Well, he did try to do something about it. He tried to talk him out of it. You
2: no, know, no, I mean, order. but like Martha's, she's she's tried to convince him, and he's just. Brushed her away very easily the way he leaves her to go to talk to ctu at the end of episode nine she's she's trying but it kind of feels like she'd have that guilt of did i do enough so i I don't think there's a win either way
0: Mm -hmm. no yeah it's definitely one of those difficult things to where it's like yeah like you said you can't win and so it's it's more of like, okay, which situation can you live with more? And so on on the one hand, I think she would I think the decision she made is the one that she can live with, which obviously she does. But really? yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even if he called the motorcade back and obviously so the attacks came later anyway, but uh and the attacks came, I don't know if she would feel as guilty for that because her whole thing is, you need to stand up to the terrorists and not give in to their demands. And so, so she was willing to put her life on the line saying, I'm taking the stand and I'm forcing you to try to take that stand. And he didn't. And um, yeah, which is interesting too, because this situation and the with the mall is another example of Logan kind of cowering back into his state of... I don't want to make the decision. I don't want to be responsible for making this big of a decision, even though we talked about last week that it's like, he's he's kind of started to step back, step into the role of, I'm I'm the president, I'm taking control and all of that. He still has all these moments of, of digressing back into, well, I don't want to make that decision. And I mean, he did that with the mall. He did that with the, um, a lot of different things with, with, with the motorcade he's like I can't, I can't take it back I, got, I, I can't be responsible for these men doing it and so it's, it's like he made the decision okay let's let the syntax gas be released in the mall to kill all those innocent people versus now he's like okay I'm not going to make that decision because I'm going to let a world leader die so that I can give in to, and give in to the terrorists as opposed to standing up to them I don't know but the, but the end goal is the same no
2: the, it, at the mall it was release the, the nerve gas to kill 800 and kill 800 people yes but the idea being we follow it back to Erwick and the rest of his terrorists and we, save the, we stop the other 19 canisters from being released and in this True. instance it's sacrifice the Russian president his wife eventually obviously his own wife but in, in theory originally it's just the Russian president and his wife however many secret service for the prospect of Bjerka will not release the canisters that's that's where it is. So, Yes, yeah, but I feel, I feel like this is actually his most decisive episode or certainly this side of his betrayal. It's his most decisive episode. Um, yes, there's a lot of toying with do I call back the motorcade now that Martha's in it? But that's kind of to be expected, I think. And he doesn't... Although he sort of panic goes, yes, call it back and then goes, no, don't wait. Hang on a minute. We're still in the same boat that we were five minutes ago. I, I mean... The one thing I will say is that uh, Fox 24, Gregory Itzin, whoever is actually involved in these things, submitted and uh, got him nominated, Gregory Itzin, for 3 to 4 a.m. and the finale of this season. That was his Emmy nominations, or his Emmy nomination episodes, the two of them, this this season. And I think they submitted wrong, because this episode with the ambush is far and away Itzin's best episode for me. I think he's absolutely magnificent in it. The scene where he gets down and prays with Mike is wonderful and heartbreaking. Even knowing all that we know about Logan in the future, even rewatching it now, it's still really impactful. Because this is ultimately, ultimately to this point, we don't really like Logan. He's uh, quite annoying and he's done all these things and was prepared to let Jack die and all the rest of it but he's still ultimately the president and he's redeemed himself a little bit this season. And he's still a human who for the last hour has had to contend with not only the decision to let his friend and a fellow world leader and his wife and secret service agent whatever die, but now also his own wife and the way he sort of accepts this with such misery and such, well, I'm going to lose my wife. How this is awful. It, it, it's so good. And I, I absolutely <clears throat> love him here.
1: Logan drifts too far because there are moments during, this, during the season where he starts to be more assertive. And you start to think that, okay, well, this guy has a backbone. Who knew? Um, and then there are times where he drifts back into uh, season four, of Logan, the one who needed President Palmer to help guide him through the crisis because he was afraid to make decisions. Um, but it's, it's it's fascinating to think that he was almost responsible for the death of of Yuri Silveroff and his wife, um, especially given the relationship that would develop between Logan and the Silverovs over the next several seasons. So it's, um, it's kind of interesting to think of what might've been had Yuri, had Jury died. Um, But you can tell (coughs) as the season gets further and further along that it's another situation where if you hadn't seen the season before, then the Logan turn toward the uh, last bit of the season would come out of nowhere because there weren't too many, too many, if any, hints of it through the first – 12 13 episodes um we just thought that he was an inept president who didn't know what he was doing half the time um but for the most part logan is probably one of my top two or three favorite villains of the series and he's probably i'm willing to say that he's probably jack's greatest rival just for the simple fact that He's the one that, even when Jack catches him, he just keeps getting away. <laughs> he just keeps finding a way to come out the other side. Um, so he's just a constant thorn in Jack's side. Um, but for the most part, with the exception, with the exception of the whole thing with with Yuri Subrov, um, I think that he played everything else pretty pretty masterful. But at the same time. With the exception of, of Keeler, I'll say, because Keeler didn't really have time to do much. Um, with the exception of Keeler, he probably had the, was the least effective of the presidents. Um, because, yeah, he signed the tr- the, the Russian treaty, <coughs> but the 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 treaty was effectively null and void once we found out that he was the mastermind behind the entire day's events. So the treaty at that point was just considered not worth the piece of paper it was written on.
2: Wayne Palmer is thrilled that you've just let him off the hook as the least effective president. <clears throat> I
1: liked Wayne. Be quiet.
2: <laughs> that's that's not the same thing.
1: I liked Wayne as president. I thought they pulled the rug out. We'll, we'll talk about him. that. In I, they pulled the rug out way too <laughs> soon on him. Okay. I thought he was. Uh, I thought he was underrated.
0: Okay, so now, so now we got Joel pulling out at, at Bradley. But anyway, don't get me started, Bradley. Get us, get us. Let's get us back on track here. So we have. There's plenty that we can talk about Logan, and I'm sure that he will be in many discussions going forward because he likes to insert himself. But anyway, uh, we well, all this is going on throughout this whole. Section here we have um, the whole thing with Irwig, and we discover his connection with Nathanson, and Nathanson has a connection with Henderson, and so Jack goes and follows up on Henderson because Jack knows Henderson because they worked together in CTU prior to season one, and Henderson was one of the guys that Jack busted, um, that was alluded to in season one, and it's it's really interesting to be able to see that and rather you put the the quote here it says well, what are you accusing me of now jack being in bed with terrorists and so it's kind of a nod I mean, that i mean that's almost like a classic thing like someone that's guilty they're gonna say what you say i did this it's like, it's like he was almost admitting guilt from there but jack kind of stepped back from that but anyway so yeah, that and just the whole the whole character of Christopher Henderson. I don't really like the character. I like the way that he's portrayed and the role that he plays, I guess, but definitely not a character I like. So he's
1: bite your tongue, Josh.
0: You got to <laughs> love to hate him, surely.
1: I loved uh, Christopher Henderson. Yeah, he's great. Christopher Henderson was one of my favorite villains, and <clears throat> you kind of, okay. you kind of you kind of get the the the, um, the hint real quick because the actor is it, um, he's another guy that he just has this face that just screams villain I know he was Robocop and all that stuff but his face without the helmet just screams villain like you can't look at him and think that he is anything but a bad guy and he's he's such a good villain that I just don't think I could picture him playing anything else. Um, so you you kind of you kind of knew, and I'd actually forgotten about the the, the season one plot of Jack um, <coughs> doing that investigation. I completely forgotten about that before Christopher Henderson brought it back up. So it's, it's another thing, that's, that's one of the other good things about 24 is they always seem to find a way, like the, the thing with Steven Saunders, where you thought Jack's whole team had died in Operation Nightfall season one, and then Saunders comes back in season three, which ties into a thread from season one. And then now in season five, you see another thread from season from season one they always seem to find ways to tie loose threads or continue loose threads from previous seasons to try to make this connective tissue. And I mean, the the whole Syntox nerve gas conspiracy in itself is some of the most convoluted tissue that I've ever seen in any series that I've ever watched in my life. I mean, the, (laughs) the chain of command and the the bit players and the minor players and the major players and the the the, the fact that this goes on for essentially the rest of the series, um, it's just it's convoluted. But at the same time, the way that they were able to, to connect everything together um, was, I think, pretty pretty good on that part.
2: You can tell actually when they first meet as well. And you are right. I mean, this Henderson is the last piece of the three twenty-four puzzle. We'd had uh, the Dreysens and Nightfall and Palmer, a man, Stephen Saunders, and we had Teddy Hanlon. I think his last name was certainly Teddy is his first name. the The sniper in season one, Jack's the partner of Hannon. one of the two guys that. Say again, sorry. Hannon, I think. Yeah, Hannon, something, something like that. Teddy was definitely his name. I can't remember his last name offhand, um, but him being the partner of one of the two guys that Jack busted. Presumably, I don't think it's ever said exactly that that is the case, but I think the idea is that Henderson is the other one. He wasn't Teddy's partner, certainly, and, and there wasn't another person that he busted. But it kind of fills in that last piece of the puzzle. And you can tell from that first scene that we see with Jack and Henderson, they've got the history, they've got that sort of antagonistic background. And you can also tell as well that Kiefer and Peter Weller uh, they've they've clearly got a lot of sort of film experience this is it's got a real cinematic feel to it the way that they portray it it's it's one of the best bits of acting sort of opposite each other in the season uh that quote you mentioned josh is is superb and I think it's actually as well we've got to look at season five and we've we've talked before about it that season five is absolutely mental in the way that it's going at three thousand miles an hour all the time, and I think it's very reflective of that that you kind of forget, actually, that Henderson's second scene involves him trying to blow up Jack. You sort of go twenty minutes, you meet him, and then twenty minutes later, we come back to him after the ambush and all the stuff with Lynn. And you kind of forget that we've only met him in one scene before, and then he's trying to blow Jack up. It, it's chaos, and, and I think it's I think it's very impressively handled, actually, as well. Um, can I tell you a story about it too? <laughs> When I, as I'm, I think I've mentioned before, I was quite young when I watched the show first time round, and I always used to, um, for some, I don't quite know why I did this, but I always used to read like the official Fox recaps before I'd actually watched the episode. So they would air here, sort of a week, two weeks, I mean, maybe a week after they aired on Fox, and I'd always actually read the sort of blow by blow, point by point, exact scene by exact scene recap on the Fox website. So I obviously knew a lot of certainly the middle half of this season before it happened. And then I always, I read I remember reading about the, the bunker that Jack is taken to by Henderson to find out about the centox. And I always pictured it as one of those, like, you know, on building sites, those sort of one man toilets. I always kind of pictured it like that originally when I read it. And then I saw it. I'm like, that's not what I, how I pictured this at all. It's like a proper room and a proper big thing. And that always comes back to me when I think about that episode and really watch it, that I kind of, Originally thought without having seen it. Oh, this is going to be like a, a four by two, just like with a toilet in it. That's it. I, I don't quite know why I thought this, but that is what it is.
0: Anyway, <laughs> uh, Joel is beside himself. But, but yeah, so I mean, I, I. Like I said, I do...
1: Story story time with Bradley I hate the,
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. It's, I didn't say that I hated the character. I just didn't necessarily like what his character does. That's more of what I was referring to. Well, he's so, a villain, Josh. You're not supposed yes. to. Well, that's not true. They're, no. <laughs> love to hate. You've got to love to hate Henderson. Yeah. Yeah, so... But yeah, so, I mean, and and just the character... You, you see the solidification of his character and his determination when Jack is in his house and they're going through that short interrogation and, I mean, he, he goes to threaten the the shoot him in the knee and Henderson's like, oh, that's right, Jack, go there. That's what I taught you. He's like, shoot, go for the kneecap. <laughs> and so... The fact that, he, the fact he went- that Henderson walks through Jack through his own
2: interrogation both at his house and then at CTU an hour later, it's just incredible. It, it's so, so good, but he's just like, what, I think it's like, disarm your subject by showing emotion for his cause or whatever it is that he says in yeah. the next episode. Like, you can't write, well, you can write this stuff, obviously, but it's just it's magnificent. He, he, he
1: was right. Jack did go for the kneecap. He just did yeah. go for his kneecap.
2: No, he shot, he shot her above the kneecap. She can still yeah. walk.
1: Yeah, that's what he says, but I didn't see her walk anymore after
0: that. Well, so. we didn't need to see her after that, did we? Yeah, I was going to say we didn't really see her after that anyway. So. <laughs> but, but yeah, and, and then, and then the, you, you can see the look on his face. Okay, so you, can, you knew at that moment that he definitely was hiding <laughs> something, but you knew that he was willing to even let not only himself die, because we've seen that, but to let his wife die or to be seriously injured and it, and Jack Jack realized that right away he's like okay I'm not going to make progress by doing that and he didn't want to do any more damage to her because you he know that she didn't have anything to do with it she was just there and totally oblivious of what was going on but yeah it's, but yeah just really showing his character in in that and I I I, I I do like the way that he and Jack interact because they are I don't know almost mirror of each other, and so yep. um but yeah, so and, and the way you see the the way they interact um later on coming into episodes coming up next next week and whatnot, and so there's that great I, line he
2: has as well, Henderson about opening Pandora's box if you get him to talk
1: I thought they I, I thought did. they could I thought they could have kept him around for another season of Will. They? know, just killed them all.
0: Probably. It would have been better than some other characters that they introduced in season 6 be hard to believe that Henderson goes
2: that long without trying to find Jack and kill him, even in a Chinese prison. But anyway. Well, maybe. I mean,
1: why would he find him and kill him when he could just let the Chinese do it for him?
2: Why would he leave him alone? The it's another <laughs> different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Stop sidetracking us, Joel.
1: It's not my fault. I'm just saying he was taken out way too early. I thought they had some some leads that they could have rode with that. He could have got away. Okay. I
0: uh, mean, there, was- there, there, is, there is, of course, a thread that, um, that, that goes from, from Christopher Henderson here in Season 5 <laughs> and threads into Season 7, but we're not going to go there yet. But we do need to talk about the attack on CTU that we already alluded to from the – result of uh Lynn losing his key card and somehow the druggy boyfriend getting it into the hands of the terror I I'm I still kind of question how that all came out and how the terrorists discovered that he had the key card and whatnot but anyway gets into their hands and then they break in and they're they're able to set off the centox in there and they just have minutes to try to evacuate, or less than minutes—I can't remember exact time frame—but crazy, crazy thing. And yeah, it's that suspense versus surprise thing again. And, and these, this episode and the
2: two previous as well, with the attack on the motorcade and the attack at the hospital—they're all that suspense thing of we know that the is going to get hit, we know that the hospital's going to get attacked, we know that CTU's going to get attacked. We've known CTU's going to get attacked for a little while. And yet it's just that that tension the whole way through the episode of when's it going to happen? Is it going to go off? Are they going to stop it? Are they going to find him? And they don't. And then you get the surprise element as well with Edgar's death, which is very sad.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to say something. And I want to start off, uh, just in case he listens to this podcast, by saying how much I love Louis Lombardi. Edgar Styles is one of my favorite characters in the entire series. And his death was gut-wrenching, especially when you look at Chloe's face and the effect that it had on Chloe. Um, that being said, I was highly, highly upset that and I'm and I'm sure this is something we're gonna talk about next week, but I'm highly upset <coughs> that Edgar Stiles got himself a silent clock
2: and Tony Almeida did not. Tony didn't die. That's the difference.
1: It's very he simple, did. Joel.
2: He, he did, did die.
1: He Tony was he's, he's, dead.
2: He's in season seven.
1: Okay, well, oh, nobody knew that in season minutes. five. <laughs> <laughs> nobody knew that in season five, okay? The writers probably didn't know that until about five minutes before they started writing season seven. okay. So let's let's not let's not even go there. They didn't know in season five when they killed off Tony that hey we're just gonna give him a season off and then bring him back in season seven. Okay. So for all intents and purposes, Tony's death was it. Now mind you, he's already escaped death like eighteen times before this. But season five was it. That was his death. And Tony has been a staple in the series since season one but yet Edgar gets a silent clock
2: and Tony doesn't deserve it. one. Not more than Tony Almeida, he doesn't. But but independent from that, did he not deserve one? If Tony hadn't died,
1: I would be okay with it.
2: Did, did Edgar I would by himself deserve a silent clock, yes or no?
0: So By, by himself... So so, Joel, you're comparing it to Tony, who did not get a silent clock. Okay, we can yes. compare it to some of the other people that did get a silent clock. <laughs> in previous episodes that we can question, okay, did they really deserve to get a silent clock in there? I mean, George Mason, he got a silent clock, and we got... Um, he deserved it. I just don't now in season three. So, Run, Edgar did just as much to, to be able to deserve a silent clock as even they but did. But how...
1: How many how many silent clocks do we have per season before this?
0: This is uh, silent clock. This is silent clock
2: number five. And so, incidentally, incidentally, it's the only silent silent clock because every other silent clock has some sort of sound in the background or foreground. So,
1: being being that you think this is going to be the only silent clock, right? And I'm pretty sure when they killed Edgar off, they had already had it in their mind that they were going to kill Tony. So when you have, by himself, Edgar probably deserves a silent clock.
2: Hooray! Finally we got it at home and only took five minutes.
1: By himself. But when when you know that you're going to kill Tony off a few episodes later, you don't waste the only silent clock on Edgar when you know that Tony has been there from the beginning. If anybody deserved a silent clock... It was Tony Almeida.
2: 24, of course, will later do two Silent Clocks back to back in season eight and two in the same episode in Live Another Day. So it's not like they couldn't have done one here for Tony as well.
0: Yeah.
1: That will forever, I will forever be upset about that. I don't care if he comes back in season seven, he should have got a Silent oh. Clock in season five.
0: No need to get mad at them giving Edgar a silent clock because they didn't give Tony one. And you get mad at them for just not giving them Tony one, not because of giving Edgar one.
2: The reason to get mad at them giving Edgar a silent clock is the fact that Edgar and Chloe are very stupid in letting Edgar die. See, now now you're just being offensive. (laughs) You can't get away from the fact, right, that Edgar, going to check on Carrie, bearing in mind there's an an intrusion, they know there's a terrorist inside CTU, going to check on Carrie unsecured seems like a really bad idea then Chloe lets him do it, Bill lets him do it as well doesn't seem to notice and then Edgar sort of not really responding to the fact that Chloe tells him to get out of the building I mean it, it's just, it's pouring as an Edgar um, seeing Carrie, looking for him looking for her, going and checking her pulse somehow not noticing the canister of nerve gas in the background, might have been good if he had but um, yeah tragic but, uh-
1: I'm not. I'm not upset about that because he was going to look for uh, a fellow uh, associate. Very something's bad time going for it. Something's going on. Something's going on in the in CTU. So he wants to go to make sure that Carrie's okay, especially considering he was a bit of a jerk to her. You know, like uh, twenty, thirty minutes
2: earlier. He he kind of caused her death as well, indirectly. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. I've not even said my other thing that I'm sure Joel will dislike which is that Alicia Cuthbert has her best scene in the entire show in this episode oh balls malarkey the scene the scene, <laughs> with, the scene where she first has a chat with Jack when he comes back the first, the first time she's seen him for however long thinking that he's dead is superb yeah. I absolutely love that scene get That's ridiculous.
1: (laughs) I'm not even going to identify that with the response.
2: Do you not not think it is?
1: No, I do not. I mean, the least she could have done was just act, you know, give him a hug and believe that he's alive. You know, instead, instead, instead she just reads him the riot act from the moment, I'm happy you're alive, but, and then just acts like her usual, Spoiled self, while she's having,
2: while she's having he, relations with a guy that's twenty years older than her. That that's not great. But like <laughs> she's she clearly doesn't. Well, she kind of does, but she also kind of doesn't feel the apathy towards him. Like ultimately, her father's pretended to be dead in her eyes for the last eighteen months, and she you know she'll later come to find out that he knew all about her depression and misery and. What now? He's just back, and like everything's gonna be rosy and okay, and everything. But like, you can't have that. But I love how stoic Cuthbert is in it. And then Jack walks out, and he's she's sort of out of his sightline, and she starts to break down, and that it, it all feels fairly natural to me. And I think it it is one of her best scenes, if not her best scene. Next subject. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Jesus.
2: Uh... Bradley's, Bradley, Bradley's not,
1: not going to get my blood pressure up this episode. <laughs>
2: I like how that section started with Joel seeming like he was going to say something controversial and then it ended up just being Tony deserved a silent clock, which, let's face it, he probably did. And then I've still somehow managed to get the upper hand over him on controversial.
0: Yeah, whether, whether, whether Tony actually, whether they knew that Tony was actually dead at that point or not, he should have got a silent clock. Because thinking back to it, George Mason, his silent clock isn't when he died. His silent clock is when he walked out of CTU for the last time. So he wasn't even dead at that point. So it was just a an emotional moment at at the time. And so, yeah, Tony should have. So what we should do is we should go back and dub over when that happens and just take <laughs> out all the audio to make it silent in honor of Tony Ameda. we got to leave some noise in the background because Edgar's silent
2: clock is the only <laughs> silent clock. Yes, a bunch of bull.
0: Anyway. On that happy note, I' not like to go it ahead and wrap it up for this week. And next week is going to definitely be exciting. This is when we actually get to see Logan's true colors and the side that he's on and all of those things. And so a very, very interesting and a lot of different twists and turns and things like that. And a lot more of that suspense versus surprise that um, you've been mentioning, Bradley. But anyway, so that's coming in next week. And if you want to give your feedback, you can do that. You can call 405-771-0567, or you can go to 24faithful.com, and you can be able to leave your feedback through the contact there. We will see you next week.